everybody, I'm Wendy Murdoch, and this is Webinars with Wendy. I've been doing a series of webinars during the pandemic, and now it's winter time, so it's a great time to keep doing webinars because we've had snow. We got about five inches of snow here in Virginia. It's been windy. It's been cold. Not even My cats and I don't want to go outside, and I would have been in Costa Rica had it been a normal year, but of course it's not. So I'm actually home for the first time in February in about three or, three or four years, um, and I'm hibernating. Yeah, <laughs> I'm hibernating as best I can with my cats and our wood stove and just keeping really busy in the office. So if I can get everything caught up, then I can spend springtime in my garden. Um, tonight, my guest is Dr. Joyce Harmon. She loves the cold, is very happy with the snow that we got. Not so sure about the wind, but <laughs> she's been begging. I can for do without. Yeah, the wind's pretty bad. So um, uh, with no further ado, I'll let Joyce introduce herself and we'll get into the topic of equine ulcers this evening. Hi, Joyce, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me back, Wendy. Um, I'm a holistic veterinarian. If you don't know who I am, I've been in practice, I hate to confess, uh, it's 31 years actually, as of a couple of days ago. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, February, right around the beginning of February was when I started this practice. So, um, and it's interesting, the whole ulcer thing has become a bigger and bigger issue over the years. In the beginning, I think part of it, partly we didn't understand ulcers. We didn't know that they existed and they probably did exist, but they have definitely become front and center now on as far as one of the larger issues that we have in the horse world and uh, we can have ulcers in the stomach we can have ulcers in the small intestine we can have ulcers in the large intestine and the symptoms unfortunately can mimic almost anything else like Lyme disease or it, not so much maybe EPM but many of our are diseases where our horses are not doing well, either gaining too much weight or losing weight, maybe digestive issues with colic. We can have actually mild to severe colic from ulcers. We can have diarrheas. We can have really almost any stool alteration. So, And, and Joyce, that doesn't even begin to scratch the training issues that result from horses with ulcers. Huge training issues, pain issues, behavioral issues. Um, and they're, they're again, kind of nondescript. Sometimes they can be very obvious. You put your right leg on the horse and, the, and they kick out. Other times it's just that they don't want to land on the other side of a fence or they don't want to make a turn in a certain direction. It can be quite subtle and it can be quite dramatic. It can be bucking people off. It can be rearing. It can be all kinds of things that we call behaviors. Um, we call bad behaviors. We call, we tend to, there's a tendency in the horse world if the horse misbehaves to think that it's because they're behaving badly because they're not nice horses. And the truth is that, yes, there's a couple of horses out there that are not nice horses, but most of them are hurting and they're complaining. And the only way they can complain is to deposit us on the ground or um, in, react in some way that we consider negative to get our attention. That's what they have to get our attention somehow. 
And so we have to, when we have an issue that's going on with a horse, what we have to do is kind of step back and become a detective and see what possibly could be the problem. Because we have some very normal looking horses with good weight, good appetite, good stool, and some mild behavior problems that can have some pretty significant ulcers. And we can have horses on the other end of the spectrum that are skinny or their coats are poor or they're eating poorly or they're bucking people off. And yet it's all part of that same syndrome. And it can also be because they have pain somewhere else, say they have pain in their feet, but they have pain in both front feet. And so they don't really limp. Well, the pain in their front feet is real but the pain, the pain creates the stress, which creates the ulcers. So you end up with two problems. If a horse that doesn't want to go forward or that is, is behaving badly because their feet hurt, and you have a horse that's behaving badly because their gut hurts as well. So choices there, I, I I know that technology has changed, which is why we know that more horses have ulcers than we thought, right? We can scope them. Um, two questions. When did we start looking more? And is there, is there a guess at what percentage of horses have ulcers? Um, we started looking a lot more in the, in the 2000s, um, probably late 2000s. Um, 2005, 2008, in that general area, we really started to focus more on it. Um, by 2010, we were really starting to pay a lot of attention to it and recognizing, really recognizing that, that even backyard horses have ulcers. The interesting thing around that time is that we were also learning that horses don't need grain so much. So the feed companies were putting beet pulp into horse feed. And one of the triggers for ulcers, and I think one of the triggers on the very larger scale, is that genetically modified feed and the Roundup that's used on the genetically modified feed is a big inflammatory um, agent. So some of the studies that were done just on pigs after feeding for a few months, feeding genetically modified corn, they were, their guts were looked at on a post-mortem and they already had ulcerations and the horses fed, I mean, the the pigs fed organic grain did not. So around the time we got more in tune with it was also 2008 was when uh, beet pulp became genetically modified. And it was in the late 2000s that the feed companies started putting it into almost every food because they wanted to eliminate some of the grain because we were figuring out that we didn't need to feed quite as much corn and oats and, and soybean. The corn and oats, I mean, corn and soybean have been GMO for many, many years, yeah. longer than that. So I think my, my feeling is that 
we, it was a combination of things in that our feeding patterns changed, our feeding feed ingredients changed, our use of GMOs went way up, and we started looking more. Right. What percentage of horses? It could be extremely high. And I think you have to look a little bit more at horses in different conditions. So horses that are in a lot of confinement, a lot of stress, a lot of competition, or just 50 horses on 20 acres of property and everybody has little paddocks and, or there are too many horses out in a 10 acre field, too much, too much changing of the herds around. Anything that's gonna create stresses you're going to have a much higher percentage, potentially even most of the uh, horses are, uh, have, have ulcers in those situations. Whereas many of the horses who are living in healthy environments, probably a, a fewer number of horses have them. We still have horses that have wonderful, happy lives that have ulcers. But if we look at what they're fed, many times they have been fed com conventional grains for many, many years. Okay, so, so we're looking more, we've changed our feed, and of course there's a lot of increased stress. Um, I know there was a study, and I don't know, I, I can't reference it right off the top of my head, that, that looked at ulcers in horses in relation to trailering. Um, and they were seeing an increase in ulcers in horses post-trailering. I can't remember. Do you remember that study? Did you ever see that study? Um, I've seen it. And uh, the, any, any, do anything that creates a degree of stress can add to ulcers. And if we look at ulcers kind of from a Chinese perspective, it's a, it's a really good way to understand what's happening, particularly in the stressful situation. So in Chinese medicine, if you're not familiar with it, we have, we have yin and yang that are supposed to be in balance. And we have meridians or pathways that go through the body. And those pathways are named after internal organs, liver, heart, lung, kidney. So the, the organs have what I call a Chinese job and a Western job. So the Chinese job of the liver meridian is to, it, it cleans the blood, it nourishes the blood, it nourishes the tendons and ligaments, and it lives right next to the stomach physically. That's a, a Western thing. I mean, we know where it lives. They both are kind of close next to each other. The stomach, we know, digests food. So in Chinese medicine, the liver meridian is also the stress meridian. Mm. That is where stresses tend to go. The liver meridian, when it's out of balance, all of these meridians have emotions and colors and seasons, and, and that's a whole nother webinar. But um, I think you did one with Madeline Ward on 
Did you do we, one with Madeline? We had one on? with Madeline and then Kim Bowers come back and she's talked about five element theory in terms of great. Temperament. Okay. So, yes. So if, if you want to learn more, go, go looking at some of those. Um, and so the, the liver meridian responds to stress. And when the liver meridian is out of balance, it gets very angry. And it gets overheated, but it can also get deficient. And when it is deficient, it can overheat just like your car overheats when you're deficient in oil. So you can either have a, an excess where they get really, really angry, like you walk down the shed row at a racetrack and they try to eat your shoulder off. Those guys' liver meridians are just like ready to kill you. Or you can have a horse that has had stress over a long period of time and now they're actually kind of deficient and that's more like running your car without oil. That gets hot too. So you have something that gets hot, that liver, and you have the stomach and they're sitting next to each other. And in a simplified way, the liver is basically cooking the stomach. Mm. So it's cooking that digestive process. And you can think of it as cooking it. You can think of it as inflaming it. It's not the exact terminology that the Chinese would use, but that's a good way to think about it if you're not really familiar with it. So the more stress we have from whatever, those sore feet, a bad fitting saddle, a, um, a, a need for a chiropractic adjustment, for any source of pain, bad shoeing, I mean, it, there's so many reasons a horse can be uncomfortable. Right. And so we end up with our guts literally being cooked by that, that liver energy. Mm. You know, um, so that's one. Well, I was thinking, of, Heather O'Leary just um, uh, said that liver hates wind. And um, yes. And she's equating, and I, it just reminds me of me because. Um, uh, I hate wind and I have liver stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I didn't absolutely. realize that liver hates wind, but I hate wind. Like I walked outside tonight. I was back in the house. <laughs> yes. Don't really personally, yes. all I'm trying to say. Yeah. And, and it's, it is very interesting um, how there, there are, if you get into all the meridians, they have their likes and dislikes and, uh, that, that pattern fits absolutely perfectly. Yeah, and, and so you get, you, get, you get grumpy when it gets okay. windy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. But Al, who's Earth, I mean, I can ride him in a windstorm and he could care less. I don't know how he does it because for me, I'm like, you know, having a heart attack. But um, so there, so this is interesting. Mm -hmm. It makes sense. Yeah. Wind, wind doesn't, Earth doesn't care about wind. And Al is definitely Earth. Earth. And that's why I sent Brad to the barn to feed the horses tonight because he doesn't care that much about wind, but I wasn't there. Yes. Yeah. So all of those stresses affect that liver meridian. And it can be what the, one of the big things that I look at is what I call confinement stress. So mother in, in nature, 
the herd of horses has 10,000 acres to live in. That is not confinement. A herd of elephants on 10,000 acres is actually is starting to be confined. And you start to see some, I, we haven't looked at elephants, I don't think with ulcers, but you're starting to see in, increased parasite loads in some of the elephant populations. And you look out and you say, well, it's got 10,000 acres. Well, when they eat a tree for breakfast, they need 10,000 acres because it takes that much land to feed them. In the horse world, 10,000 acres and two or three herds of horses roaming around is no stress. Take that same horse and put him in 50 acres or the same herd and you put it in 50 acres and suddenly 50 acres is still a lot of land, but you start to actually have a little bit of confinement stress. Now take that same horse and put him in a paddock that's half an acre by himself without his herd. Put him in a stall, um, put him in a trailer. Do things with them that take them out of that free flowing natural environment and you create a level of underlying low grade stress, but still a stress. Some are very susceptible to it. And like Al, Wendy's horse, whatever. He's not stressed by it. You put him in a paddock, you put him in a big field, life's good. But other horses can be extremely stressed. They can be stressed by the 50 acre field. And for some, it takes 10 acres or five acres before they start to have that underlying stress. So what are some of the uh, telltale signs of low grade stress? Like if we were watching our horses, how do we, how do we determine this is low grade stress that could be leading to something else? Because it sounds like stress is really the, one of the keys to ulcers. Yes, I think it is. So a lot of it is, is really paying attention to and knowing your horse. We know the, what I call hangnail horses. They come in from the paddock and they're holding their leg up. And you look and yes, there's a tiny little cut here. <laughs> and they're just like, oh my God, my dog has turned out to be a hangnail dog. I, you, I thought her leg was broken the other day and two days later she's running through the snow, perfectly sound. So those kind of, of creatures if you think about it, you actually kind of know your horse is really easily offended by small things. The owls of the world are not easily offended by small things. And they're not easily offended by big things. And so you start to think about, is my horse sensitive to environmental changes? If I change their pasture mate, do they lose their brain for a week? Are they miserable? If I go out of town for a week and I come back, are they giving me the cold shoulder or are they just happy to see me and ready to go back to work? Are they affected by changes in their environment? That's one way to think about how sensitive they are to stress. The more affected they are by changes in the environment, the more likely they are to be affected by stress. 
Um, you start to do some construction in the barn. Al's not even going to care. So you're banging on his head with a hammer and nail. You drop something in the aisle. No big deal. I had worked with a horse one time. She did construction in the barn and all of his seizures came back. Ooh. And seizure is a, is a liver, very often a liver issue. And so he was fine until that started and he just could not handle the construction in the barn. So then you look for, those are the, the personality aspects of would they be sensitive to changes. And then you look at the lifestyle. So the horse is really sensitive, may have a really happy lifestyle and it may not be a big issue. But if you have that same really sensitive horse in a highly competitive environment, lots of activity, maybe they don't rest well in the stall, maybe they don't like their companion in the field, that horse is much more at risk for having ulcers. And then you start to look at the more subtle physical signs. Is their hair coat really nice and shiny? And yes, some horses with ulcers look absolutely fine. But many of them, you just kind of like, no, the coat just isn't great. Or you're, you find yourself um, out in the, uh, just turning on a little heat here. You find yourself um, looking at the shampoo aisle. It's like, well, what, should, what kind of shampoo can I get my horse? Because his coat needs to be shined up a bit. You may not be thinking his coat's not in good shape, but you're sort of subtly looking for something. And you look at, oh, I think I need some essential fatty acids. And, oh, I think I need this or that or the other thing because his coat's not as shiny as the others. That's a big telltale sign that something's not quite right. A healthy horse should be, have a brilliant deep shine, even under the mud. Some of the clipped horses don't look super shiny when they're first clipped, but once they've settled into their clip, they should be. And so you look for other, is there, is their manure consistently good or not? Is there appetite consistently good or not? Do they tend to be a little bit picky? If you go off to a show or a clinic or a competition or something like that, do they settle right in to their new environment? Or do they come home and maybe pace around the paddock for a bit before they settle in? Little subtle signs that they're not quite right. So someone's asking um, that they've read that molasses can trigger ulcers. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, if you look at the number of chemicals that are actually allowed to be added to molasses oh. that are not on any label, um, and the sugar itself does not help the, the gut, the acid-base balance in the gut, um, but I would suspect not only the sugar, but the chemicals that are allowed, the sort of antifreeze-like stuff so that it doesn't turn into a brick in the winter. Um, there's a whole list of chemicals that are allowed and they don't have to be on the label because they are put in 
So you have your bag of feed and you have your ingredients that go into the feed, but then you have back here, you have the raw materials that the feed company buys. So the, the additives are added back here. Feed company buys it. We bought molasses. Right. And we put it into our food. So those chemicals added back here were, are not on the label. And they are in there because sugar likes to ferment, sugar likes to turn, or molasses likes to turn into bricks in the winter. Um, molasses feeds bacteria. So there's all kinds of stuff they have to do to get that into, into a commercial feed itself. Okay, we have and another, we know, oops, sorry. Go ahead. I was gonna say, we have another question that um, can some ovary issues cause ulcers? Um, the ovary issues are causing ulcers in the sense that one, they can be painful, and two, guess who governs the ovaries? The liver. Oh. So <laughs> oh, no. in some ways, <laughs> yes. Okay. In some ways, you have a liver meridian imbalance. It's not that the it's not that the ovary itself is causing the ulcer, but you have that liver meridian imbalance. And the symptoms that you're seeing are ovarian or gut or both. And then, you know, like I've seen some horses where they uh, will crib after they eat their dinner. Um, you know, and it's pretty much associated with food. Um, so is that a telltale sign? That's a classic sign. That's a classic sign. And what's interesting that you can't, you can't say that all horses who crib have ulcers. They may have had ulcers in the past. They may have learned cribbing from their genetics, from their mother, or they may have learned cribbing from being on the racetrack and just watching everybody else doing it. And it's a great stress release. But um, there are quite a few horses who crib significantly less or even stop after their ulcers are, are fully treated. It would be interesting if somebody would do a study on cribbers to scope them and see how many have ulcers just as a, that would be an interesting study. Yeah, and the, one of the hard things with the ulcers is we can stick a scope down the stomach and look at stomach ulcers really easily. There's something like, I looked it up one time, but not, not before tonight, but there's like 70 feet of gut. Oh. <laughs> so we don't have any 70 foot long scopes. Right. You can sometimes... There are some people who feel they can ultrasound the, the hindgut and see some ulcers um, in that way. And if the ulcers are present in an area that can be seen with the ultrasound, that's great. But if you have a 16-hand horse or even larger or just a big, deep-bodied horse, that ultrasound maybe reaches a third of the way in, maybe if you're really lucky, there's a huge amount of gut there that you cannot actually visualize from the outside at this point in time. 
So you could have ulcers internally that you would miss, even though you may be seeing some, you may see none on the outside, you may have a bunch in the middle. And so I don't feel like it's a definitive diagnosis in the negative sense, but if you find them on an ultrasound, that would be a positive. Right, but so it, yeah, it you, not... you said in the beginning, you can have ulcers in the stomach, the small intestine and the large intestine. So that, that's a lot of gut. That's a lot of, that's a lot of gut. Are there, and the large intestine is... Well, I was gonna say, is there any way to, to, to be able to differentiate other than scoping to see if it's in the stomach? Are there telltale signs or ways you can palpate acupressure points or something like that to kind of either help you determine if there's ulcers or where they are? Um, there, there's a couple, uh, there's a couple of acupuncture point sets. I don't know if I have, I'll have to think if I have one on a slide. I don't think I do, but, um, I can, I can describe them and point to them on me. Um, and there's a, a fecal blood test that you can do from the company Succeed. So it's called the Succeed Fecal, Succeed Fecal Blood Test, I think. And that company also does make a nice hindgut um, product. And that blood test may not be perfect, but in some cases it's probably better than trying to look at it externally. And it's certainly totally non-invasive because it just uses feces, which horses produce plenty of. And so you can monitor your horse quite easily that way. So, so are, that's not, that's are most ulcers associated with, with blood then in the, in the manure? I mean, is that a, that's a pretty accurate. Yeah. So if you have, if you have an ulcer, um, think about when you have bitten your tongue, I mean, or your, your, your gums and you have an ulcer that hasn't um, healed right away. It is open, it is inflamed, and that is just like an ulcer down in your gut. So if, if you have an active ulcer, the skin, think of it as the skin of the inside of the gut has a hole in it. And the question is how big is the hole and how deep is it? But there is a hole, which means that there can be blood that actually gets into the manure and it passes through and based on the characteristics of the blood, you're not gonna see it with the naked eye, but this test can pick up the microscopic level of it. And if it's in the stomach or small intestine area, the, the blood is kind of partially digested. If it's in the large intestine area, it is not so it's not digested and so the the uh, test will actually give you a difference and an indication and it's something that you can do yourself yeah that so sounds scoping, like a, a pretty good um idea because it's non-invasive you can do it yourself and yeah um you can like and if, if it's, it's really not perfect it may not be the the absolute definitive test but it is a very useful test and you can do it again if you need to. If, you, if you're convinced, if it comes out negative and you, 
you do a couple of things and you want to try again a few weeks later, you can do it again. Cool. Uh, so the acupuncture points that can be useful, one, and usually if you have both of these things going on, it's a good indication that you have ulcers. So right at the base of the neck, where there's kind of a strap muscle. And if you search um, Kerry Ridgeway, He's got, um, he's the one that really defined these points. And I think some of his work is on the internet. So down at the base of the neck, if it's tender there and right behind the withers. So if you have a tender spot here and behind the withers on both sides and that you have your tender on both sides here most likely you are dealing with ulcers and doesn't tell you necessarily which portion of the gut is involved, but it is, it is a useful piece of information and it can help guide you in the right direction, or at least it's another step in your detective work to figure out what's going on with your horse. So when you say behind the withers, do you mean at, um, at the back? Right, where are the right where the points of the tree go. Oh, okay, that's exactly what I was trying to get to, yeah. Yeah, right, at, right where the points of the tree go, right where the base of the fork of a Western saddle is, right in that area. Okay, so and those, those are points, actually- And then the base of the neck on both sides. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. I just wanted to be clear. Yeah. So those points, and, I mean, are, they, are they on a particular meridian or? Yeah, the, this point is on the stomach meridian itself. Interestingly enough, the one on the back is one by the withers is the bladder meridian. And it actually happens to be right around the lung point, but it's, we're not, it, this is more of a diagnostic pairing of those two points that are sore than it is the stomach meridian points on the body. And Carrie just found that these consistently showed up, these two locations consistently showed up in horses that were positive for ulcers. And when he originally did the study, he actually had vets that were scoping some of the horses to back him up. Okay, good to know. Um, I had another question, but I can't think of it right now. So keep going. Um, so th those are some, some of the basic ways to, to start your diagnostic process, if you will. I'm not a huge fan of scoping unless we really need to. And in some cases, if you have medical insurance on your horse, they're not going to pay out for some of the ulcer treatment unless you have had them scoped. The scoping process itself involves not feeding the horse overnight so that their stomachs are clean and you can see. That in itself is a stress on a horse that's already stressed. So yeah. In many cases, I would rather say, you know, I think we're dealing with some ulcers and to decide, sometimes you can use the drug or you can put them on a nice herbal formula 
or even a homeopathic remedy. And we'll talk about some of the different ways that you can treat ulcers. But um, none of those things are going to harm anything. And if they are better, feeling better in a week, you have your diagnosis, you're dealing with ulcers. So why put the horse through the stress and your pocketbook through the stress? Um, somebody's uh, made a comment that her stallion moved four times in the last two years and he's lost his oomph. Uh, he used to be quite energetic, but now he doesn't seem to want to move above a walk. He's eating his hay and California trace with Timothy. Okay, but has started eating his paddock mate's manure. He seems a little depressed to me. The vet checked him out and couldn't find anything, but never considered an ulcer or ulcers. I would probably guess ulcers plural very, very high likelihood. Um, stallions, stallions like their life orderly. They like to be in charge. Moving four times is not in charge. Right. And, and depending on their personality, it's stressful, but stallions are quite sensitive. I mean, we think of them as sort of big, tough guys, but they're actually way more sensitive than even than the mares. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I would put that very high on my list for him. And then somebody's asked, does TMJ problems ever appear to be ulcers? Sure, it's, that's part of the pain syndrome. That is part of, if, in other words, the, TM, the TMJ could come from where, wherever it came from, from bidding issues, from whatever, creating pain, which is aggravated by riding because a bit puts pressure on your TMJ. And that in itself starts that pain cycle of pain and then ulcers and stress. And other, it conceivably could come the other way in that we all put stress in different parts of our bodies. A lot of horses put stress in their tails and their tails are super tight. Some of them put stress in their neck and their neck will be super tight. Some of them probably put some stress in their jaw. Humans do a ton of stress in their jaw. And so the horse may, because of the pain in his gut, actually be clenching his jaw and giving himself some TMJ. So that's one of those, it's, it's not a direct relationship, it's a response going, going one way or the other. So um, I recall at that one time telling the holistic vet that horses that stand with their elbows kind of away from their body could be a sign of ulcers. Do you, have you ever seen that or? Absolutely could be. Again, they're trying to make themselves comfortable. And the, the, the physical stomach is up on the right side, low down. And so, if that horse is experiencing the discomfort in the stomach itself, moving the elbows away from the body could, could be their answer. Conversely, their feet could be hurting and they're moving their elbows away from their body and they're getting ulcers because their feet hurt. So posture though, altered posture, standing with their feet underneath them, standing with their, their standing camped out with their front and back legs far apart, um, being uncomfortable after they urinate, um, laying down 
perhaps only on one side or laying down excessively, not wanting to run around, um, anything like that could be, you know, you have a six-year-old horse. They should run around and play and, and be young. If they go out in the field and stand there and eat grass, something's bothering them. That's where you have to be the detective. And is that the stomach that's bothering him or is it something else? But they try to, just as same as we do, if our guts hurt, sometimes we, sometimes we want kind of pressure on it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we don't want any pressure on it. So a lot of saddling up issues, you're, you know, you're, you've decided, you know, your saddle really fits well and yet your horse still is really girthy about putting the saddle on. Well, you're tightening the girth right near where that physical stomach is. Not to mention the stomach meridian that crosses that area. So it sounds like we, one of the things we need to do is get a really clear baseline on our horse when he's in the most, or I should say the least stressed environment possible to see what he's like. The, the thing is some people buy a horse and think everything's okay because the horse is so quiet and he's so quiet because he's not feeling good. Um, so that mm -hmm. can be very, very deceiving. Um, uh, yeah, so, you know, it, it sounds like, you know, because horses only have so many ways of expressing things to us, it sounds like it's, there isn't a clear, like there's these points and that sort of thing, but you've really got to kind of look at the, the total thing. But um, I guess my next question is, uh, how do you treat ulcers? And is, is there any harm in treating a horse if you think there might be ulcers without any conclusive evidence? Um, when we start treating them, if we're looking at treating them holistically, which is where I'm going to focus mostly, but we've got to talk about the drugs because A, they're used a ton, and B, they, they have their place. One thing we know about horses is they don't do gut pain well. So if they have too much gut pain and they are colicking, that's dangerous. And so if the origin of the colic is ulcers, this is sometimes where you want to do at least a couple of weeks on the drugs to get yourself past that point of danger because we don't need to end up in the hospital with a colicking horse with ulcers as the primary cause. The other place where the drugs can come in handy, and notice that I'm talking about short-term things here, the drugs can come in handy. Let's say you're going to move to a new location and you know your horse is really prone to the stress of anything that's different. You're going off to a competition. And again, you know your horse has that tendency to be stressed and maybe you already know that the herbs maybe aren't quite strong enough for that competition. You can go ahead and use the drugs judiciously that way. The problem with the drugs and with some of the natural compounds is the goal is antacids. And lots of us humans have taken antacids for years. And guess what? We have osteoporosis. We have all kinds of issues from, we have difficulty digesting as we get older because 
the stomach is acid for a reason. It is supposed to be acid. That was how we got made. So if we want to digest protein, if we want to absorb six key minerals, calcium being number one, selenium, zinc, manganese, and a couple of others, if we want to absorb that and use it in the body, it has to pass through the acid stomach and get, it's, it's called ionized, but basically it has to be acidified if you don't know your chemistry. So if it doesn't get acidified or doesn't get digested in that acid environment, and changed molecularly, then it's going to pass through the body and out the back end and not be properly absorbed. So you can take calcium all day long, but if you're taking antacids at the same time, you are not getting that calcium into your body. And, so and this would only be useful for stomach ulcers. It wouldn't be useful for correct. intestinal ulcers. Correct. So you could actually be uh, messing up even more because you're treating something that doesn't exist and then altering absorption for necessary minerals and protein and all the way through the rest of the gut. Right, right. And... On top of that, uh, most of you are probably familiar with all of the, the breakdowns um, at the Santa Anita racetracks out, or the, out in California. And remember, we're talking about calcium metabolism here. So, and I think Bob Bowker has done some studies. Has he talked about osteoporosis with you? Um, he has in the long toe, low heel, pulling the periosteum and stretching and the bone stretching and getting mm -hmm. more pulley in that respect. Yeah. Yes. And nobody is looking at antacids as a cause of osteoporosis, including him. He's looking at the mechanical aspect, but he has identified osteoporosis in feet. Yes. And so we know it exists in the horse world. Horses don't live 60, 70, and 80 years, maybe a good thing. Um, but that doesn't mean that if we alter that calcium absorption that we aren't having some effect on calcium metabolism. So is there any proof that we're altering the bone metabolism by giving these antacids, not in the horse world, but in the human world, if you look at the research that's been done in functional medicine, there is a ton of research to show that the worst thing you can do is take antacids if you want to have strong bones later in life. Wow. So having said that, some of those breakdowns at Santa Anita may have something to do with it's a high quality racetrack. There's a lot of money feeding a lot of antacids using a lot of the drugs that affect there's other drugs that affect bone metabolism. Just a little bit of food for thought out there. Um, just give you something to think about and ponder. 
Yeah, and as somebody pointed out, um, people are instructed to take Tums for calcium source. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yes. So you take Tums, and I think you, I think you absorb something like 5% of your Tums. Oh, wow. So uh, you, you're taking 500 milligrams, and you're getting about 10. So, so the drugs for ulcers in horses, is that primarily for stomach ulcers, or is there different drugs for ulcers in uh, stomach, you know, mid and hindgut? There, there are the, the most common and most expensive drug um, is the gastrogard and some of it's, um, there, there are ways of getting that a little bit cheaper. A lot of people are using Nexium now, which is, I think it's the same basic compound, it's just made for people. Um, but those are primarily for stomach ulcers and they are designed to turn off some of the acid production. Again, if you need that for short term, go for it. But long term, that's where we want to use much more of our herbal approach because most of these horses are under stress over a long period of time. We can do some homeopathic remedies, get them past some of the acute stress, but most of these guys actually need some kind of daily support to combat the rest of their life. I mean, if you own five acres, you're not gonna be able to provide them with a 50 acre field and three of their favorite buddies. And so going to the herbal route of supporting their gut is usually one of the most effective and the herbs don't suppress the acid. They take away that <laughs> inflammation or heat, they calm the liver down they take away the inflammation in the gut. They actually make the gut function better. So, so one could use the drugs as a diagnostic, like put your horse on a treatment plan for two weeks and see if his personality completely changes. And if there's no change, you at least know you don't have stomach ulcers. You could do the blood test and yes. see if you have hindgut because that yeah. drug is not going to help hindgut anyway. All right, just out of curiosity, do you think a lot of those racehorses are on some sort of ulcer meds just because they are in such a stressful environment? Oh yeah, they all are. Okay. They all are. They're on all kinds of drugs, but yes, they're almost all on ulcer drugs because they're also on anti-inflammatories and they're probably on bone altering metabolism drugs, those sort of ospos children things because they're sore. Um, there, you know, there are a couple of drugs that are used a little bit more in the hindgut, um, sucralfate and ranitidine. Ranitidine got taken off the human market, and uh, I'm not, I actually haven't quite looked at where it stands and how available it is, but um, its availability went down for a while there because they, they took it off. And they don't usually take human drugs off the market. Mm -hmm. so. There are, there are definitely issues about that. I think I actually wrote on my website, I have a, a, a blog about the whole ranitidine um, issue that came up a year or two ago. Okay, so and those I, drugs, okay. they could be diagnostically for the hindgut. In a lot of cases, if I have severe symptoms, I would probably be inclined to test with a drug if I don't have severe symptoms, I'd be more inclined to test with some herbs um, just because it's a healthier way to go with the gut. Right. 
All right, we've got some questions. Let me run these questions by you. Um, so um, Dr. Heather O'Leary is asking you about uh, the TMJ and GI ulcers. Um, do you look at STO7 point sensitivity for that? Yes, yes. And that, that, can, that can be very helpful in when you know your Chinese medicine diagnostically, yes. Okay, um, next question. If a horse is not reactive to palpations, I do those acupoints and have a couple more taught by photonic health folks. Can horses still have ulcers? How stoic can they be uh, when they're in that much pain? Um, there are horses that are very stoic. And there are also, as you're, as you're examining acupuncture points, I run across horses all the time that that other acupuncturists have looked at and they said, oh, you know, I can't find anything sore on this horse. And they're big owl kind of horses. They're soft muscled, they're, they're not very reactive. And you take a 1600 pound or 1800 pound horse and our palpation techniques, I mean, it's a, we're a fly. <laughs> And even if, you know, even if we really poke at them, some of them are just not very reactive. And the degree of reactivity has a lot more to do with the sensitivity of the horse than it does with the degree of injury that they have. So you can have a horse that's extremely reactive and they're probably more likely to be that kind of a hangnail horse and they may have not very bad ulcers. They could have severe ulcers, but you come along to that pony cross, you come along to that drafty kind of cross horse, big soft muscle, soft fascia really. It's not muscle, as much muscle as it is fascia. And especially if you're inexperienced, you're not gonna see a pain reaction. If you're experienced, you realize that that tiny little bit of reaction that you saw on that horse is actually a big deal. Whereas on the thoroughbred, that tiny little reaction probably really is a tiny little reaction. So yeah, it is very easy and it is not a hundred percent. Yeah, a lot, lot of different personality and temperament types react differently. Okay, next question. Yeah. Um, if not using drugs prophylactically, but using supplements that coat stomach and buffer hindgut, is that the same thing as what you're saying about calcium metabolism? In other words, are all antacids the same? Basically, yes. And that's where I prefer the herbal approach you will see a lot of natural products and their first ingredient will be calcium carbonate, which is Tums. Mm. So, and a lot of them talk about their buffering capacity and there's a number of different compounds that get used. We are not looking to buffer the stomach. What we're looking to do is normalize the function of the gut decrease that inflammation, calm the liver. And even though in Western herbal medicine, we may not talk about calming the liver down, we're just talking about herbs that are effective and anti-inflammatory in the bowel. If you actually look at the function of those herbs, they are also supporting the liver. 
most of the good gut herbs are good liver herbs. Great. So it sounds like we've got to get inflammation under control, whether you think of that as liver meridian or just basic inflammation, that's got to get brought down to calm everything in the gut, not mask by using antacids. Yeah. Okay. Um, so um, somebody's asking if you were to use omeprazole for a short term as a diag, how long would that be? What, what was, what would be a week, two weeks, a month? Two weeks is usually good. Um, you should, you should see a change in two weeks if the stomach ulcers are your primary issue. Okay. And if you have had, if you've had some severe colic issues, you might go ahead and finish that 30 days that they often recommend just because your symptoms were severe. Your symptoms are not that severe. I'd stop at two weeks because I would be already planning on my herbal approach. Okay. And then what were the name of the drugs for the hindgut? The two, two that you named? Um, sucralfate and uh, ranitidine. And the, I hear about, I hear about others periodically, but I'm not a big drug person. So I'm not very good at the drugs. All right. Um, and we're going to ask one more question, then get to the herbal approach here. Um, so somebody's, what do you like to feed for calories when the horse needs more than hay and a ration balancer? Um, most of them probably don't need the ration balancer because it's mostly soybean and 32% protein. Um, but some of them do need a higher level of protein. I would be, if they need a lot of protein, I'd be more inclined to feed that through alfalfa than a soybean um, genetically modified um, ration balancer. And I'd go ahead and feed my vitamins and minerals as a vitamin mineral supplement so that I don't have to have the extra GMO. But when I need calories, instead of feeding a ton of grain because the grain is known to aggravate ulcers for sure. Horses are really not made to eat a lot of concentrate. So there are things, simple things like some alfalfa, some minerals and vitamins, alfalfa pellets, alfalfa cubes. The horse has to know he's had a meal. Um, some of the uh, Cool Stance, which is a coconut-based source. And so you can get quite a few calories. You can use fat calories. They don't tend to bother the ulcers. And in fact, in many cases, they're kind of soothing to the gut. Um, and you can use simple, plain grains if you need to. Something like barley is actually a cooling grain in Chinese medicine. Oats are, oats are warming. Unfortunately, barley and oats these days, they're not genetically modified, but they do get sprayed with Roundup. So you get back into that, you know, you beat your head against which wall today. Um, sometimes you cannot avoid it. And we can't all go out and feed our horses organic grains but um, your fat calories and your, your coconut, your coconut um, fiber type of things are one of the better ways to get calories in. Speedy Beet is a non-genetically modified version of beet pulp, which can also be useful for some horses. Some horses that will really help them 
to put on weight. Other horses, I find if I feed small quantities, I actually use it as more of a diet thing. But in larger quantities, some of the horses do well with it weight-wise. So those are, those are my, my usual go-tos. Okay, so and there are a couple of non-genetically modified balancer pellets out there. I can't remember the name off the top of my head. But I think it's that, you know, from what I keep gathering is avoid as much GMO and Roundup as possible. And that's not an easy thing you have to read. Well, reading your labels doesn't necessarily tell you. You have to really investigate. Check yeah. out the company, find out where they're getting. I think Speedy Beat comes from England, doesn't it? Um, I, I think so. Yeah. And you have like... Um, uh, Triple Crown has their naturals line, so there's no GMO in there. It may it may not be organic, but at least there's no G GMO in it. And they use basically kind of oats and alfalfa as as some of their base, and that's commercially available pretty much across the country. Yeah, we're we're, we're pretty lucky because we get our organic grain, which has things like yeah. lentils and peas and things like that. Okay, so so now we know if we want to use drugs, do it short term, see if it makes a difference, but ultimately we have to calm the liver, reduce the inflammation, and that's where herbs can be really helpful. So what are some of the typical herbs that you would use uh, to balance a horse that's in that shape? So some of our really common herbs are, let me see. I just made you co-host if you want to share your screen. Okay, um, this is easier than, because if you're not familiar with the herbs and you're trying to write everything down. Yeah. So I'm just going to share that. Um, and there's, there's a variety of herbs and you can go from very simple like aloe, which you can get in many, many different places an aloe by itself, I have an aloe on the website that tastes like water. It's, a, it's more of a distilled aloe. So if you have horses that really are fussy about eating things, that's a very simple way to treat simple cases of ulcers. Um, do you want um, to start your ginger um, slideshow so that it goes bigger so it's easier to read, please? Oh, okay, yes. I will do that. Great. And that way you don't alter it because it looks like you're, you might. Um... There we okay. go. Awesome. They're there great. we go. Thanks. Okay. Um, so, so aloe is, is a, is a nice simple one that for many horses, that may be all they need. Um, ginger root. Ginger is in your spice cupboard. Ginger is also really good for horses that don't want to eat on the trailer because they're a little bit nauseous. And it's very anti-inflammatory. It's very warming. So some of your horses that are already running hot may not um, need a lot of ginger root. Apple pectin, you'll see this in some of the supplements. And of course, horses are made to eat apples, but the apple pectin extract it really helps stabilize the mucus in the in the stomach itself. Fenugreek is another really nice herb for the gut that 
the word demulsion, if you're not, not into herbalism is think of it as like a nice soothing type of a product. Um, and if the stool tends to be a little bit dry, fenugreek is a little bit stool softening. Dandelion root is a great digestive tonic. It's a great liver tonic. Um, ginger is a great detoxifier. I mean, dandelion is a great detoxifier. Um, in the spring, what do horses want to eat? Dandelions. Yep. Feed them all your neighbor's dandelions if they haven't sprayed them. Um, garlic is another simple product. Usually by itself, it's not going to fix the ulcers as much as something like aloe will all by itself, but as part of a formula, garlic can be really useful. Milk thistle, we're talking about our liver support, and milk thistle actually has anti-ulcer effects. When, if you look up the research on milk thistle, there's probably like 10,000 papers on everything it does from insulin resistance to liver support. We think of it automatically for liver, but it's a multifaceted herb that is safe to feed almost every single horse. Um, chamomile, if they have a tendency to be irritable, mentally tense, chamomile, we think about chamomile tea, it's relaxing. You can also take, if you have a spasmodic colic, you can brew up a, a nice pot of chamomile, really strong chamomile tea and syringe it down your horse and that can stop a spasmodic kind of a colic mm. quite well. And so in, the, in, the, in an ulcer formula, you might think of chamomile for the horses that are mentally more tense and not use it so much in the owl type of earth horse because they might be really lazy. <laughs> um, Irish moss, you'll see in a few formulas, it's a, it's a nice soothing, um, more of a coating type com comfort herb in a formula. Marshmallow is a fabulous one and this is one you can feed by itself marshmallow leaves, you just get a nice big handful of them and put them in. If you need to get some herbs in bulk, um, uh, Mountain Rose Herb is a great place because you can buy herbs by the pound. And Slippery Elm is what you're going to see in an awful lot of herbal formulas for the gut. And Slippery Elm is wonderful, but it is endangered. Wow, and, that's uh, fascinating. So most people don't know that. Oh, it's, you know, it's Slippery Elm. It's good stuff. Well, it, it really should not be used unless you know the company is harvesting it or getting it from places where it's been harvested ethically. And it does. There are a few parts of the country. I found out that Kansas actually has a lot of Slippery Elm but worldwide it is endangered. Marshmallow does the same thing and it's cheap and easy to grow. So substitute marshmallow and uh, try to stay away from your slippery elm. 
one one of the one of the companies that I use a lot of formulas from is Hilton Herb, and they've got a really nice digestive support product that I have had super luck with. Um, and it's got some of these some of these um, herbs in it. And you'll find in different products, like I mentioned, the Succeed product has some of the oat powder. That's one of its um, bases. And oat powder is antispasmodic. It's also, oat as an extract is a nice soothing anti-stress type of an herb. And we don't think of it when we hear about oats and horses, we think of food but the oat itself is an herb as well, yeah. as is alfalfa is an herb, it has herbal properties. Peppermint is a great digestive tonic and it's a little bit cooling versus the ginger that's a little bit warming. And so if you have some ginger and some peppermint in a formula together, those, the warming and cooling kind of cancels each other out a bit to become a little bit more neutral. Calendula flowers have calendula as an herb. We use it a lot in the homeopathic world, but in the herbal world, it has a ton of healing ability for all kinds of wounds and ulcers and chronic non-healing types of things we use it in. And we use it for everyday cuts and scrapes as well. But one of its fortes is um, non-healing ulcer type of injuries. Hmm. Meadow sweet? Hmm? No, it's interesting. I, I grow calendula and eat the flowers because it's edible. Good for your gut. Yeah. <laughs> Meadow sweet is an interesting herb because it does contain some salicylic acid, which makes it, you have to be really careful using this one in competition because Salicylic acid is what they make aspirin out of, and that will test positive. Mm. And so, but at the same time, it actually research-wise has been shown to protect the gut from our non-steroidal, our NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, our banamines, our buts, our, all of our regular inflammatory drugs. Is that a typo? G-I-T versus G-U-T? Um, gastrointestinal tract. Ah, thank you. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. <laughs> gastrointestinal tract. But, you know, you could put a U in there, too, yep. and it would, it would be just as accurate. Um, and so, so Meadowsweet is an interesting one because one of the biggest causes of ulcerations is the use of our non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Sometimes we end up, we have to do that. So if you're doing it, or if your horse is coming to you with a history of the use of those kind of drugs, you might want to make sure your formula has got some Meadowsweet in it. Um, gentian root is a, it's more of a, what we call a bitter. And bitters can be great digestive tonics. Sometimes they're not quite as flavorful as some of these others. And it's a little bit more of a stimulating herb. And it's probably not one that you would put into every formula for um, that you might be making up 
to treat ulcers acutely, but for a horse that needs a little bit of tonification, a little bit of waking up of the gut, the gentian root is quite nice. So let's see if I have. Um, we have. We so have when you're making questions, yep. uh, let me just, because okay. um, it's been, I think you're getting to that point then. Um, are there any contraindications in combining any of these herbs is, is one question. The, the herb that I, the herbs that I put up there, no. Um, and this is kind of what this slide is about is kind of making your own mixes. In many cases, if you're not familiar with herbs, you're way better off buying a formula from somebody who is a well-trained herbalist and has thought the formula out, um, especially if you have a severe case. But if you don't have a severe case or you're interested in herbs and you want to work with making some stuff up yourself, these are a couple of sample, simple formulas that are totally safe and I usually just make equal parts of those um, herbs. And I will do that by weight because you'll find that marshmallow root's really fluffy and fenugreek seed is really dense. Mm -hmm. And so a tablespoon of fenugreek seed and a big handful of, of marshmallow, um, well, marshmallow root is a little denser, but if you have marshmallow leaf, the two things don't weigh the same. On, on any of the herbs you've mentioned, can you cause trouble if you feed too much of it? No, you'd have to work really hard. Okay, so they're basically, because I know with herbs, some of them you have to be super careful. Um, yes. And so what I've put up here are herbs that are really safe to play with and and like I said, with some of them, they're going to act completely on their own, like aloe can, but you can also add aloe to a formula. If you're making up your own, stop at five herbs. <laughs> Don't put every herb that I put up there into your formula. Those are called kitchen sink formulas, and you'll find plenty of them on the internet that you can buy. And as a kitchen sink formula, the body is kind of like, okay, so what am I really supposed to do here? Mm. I've got all this information coming in. And in the case of these herbs, they're not counteracting each other. Other than we do have that warming ginger and the cooling peppermint, but you don't need to overload the body. And if you're the kind of person that would put all of these into a formula, you probably already have three other formulas your horse is eating. And at that point, the body is just throwing its hands up and, and isn't able to properly respond to any of it. When we do Chinese formulas, there's a very specific way that formulas are balanced with warming and cooling and, and um, stimulating and relaxing and the herbs are put together in a little bit different, a little bit more, I don't know that precise is the right word, but there's a little bit more of a specific formula. And for horses that are not responding to these simple formulas, that's where I will often use Chinese formulas and any of your 
your Chinese veterinarians um, can figure out the best type of formula because that's where you can get into formulas that are too strong or incorrect for a particular horse. So but not so with we, the we have a couple of questions that I think are appropriate at this point. There's been a little chat discussion going on about taking an, a course in herbal medicine. Do you know mm -hmm. of a good uh, course for somebody who's really interested in learning more that they can take? Um, in the veterinary world, And kind of, kind of the other side of that is there's several questions about uh, to what extent could you sow your pastures with these herbs so that the horses could just go out and eat what they need. I think that's kind of the synopsis of those ones. Yes. And you, you can absolutely do that. And I actually have a little mix on the website that is some herbs that have medicinal benefit that we know will survive the pasture. But you can grow um, the, the sow your seeds. That's it. You can definitely grow herbs in your pasture and watch what the horses eat. And it can be a lot of fun. If you've got a small pasture area and a lot of grazing pressure on it, you'll find that the plants don't have much opportunity to get very big. And so what you may want to do is grow them outside of the pasture and then bring the horse out periodically and just let them pick and choose and, and, and munch on them. Not all of these will survive in, in every environment or in a, high, a higher traffic pasture. Um, could but you, yes, could a, you like a, kind of offer them one herb at a time and see which one they I mean, I know horses are, know what they need if they have the options. You absolutely can. And many, I would say certainly half, maybe two thirds of the horses can be very, very accurate and turn their noses away from herbs that they don't want and gobble up herbs that they do. And probably 25% of the horses and some of our insulin resistant hungry ponies, they're gonna eat everything you put in front of them. Yeah. Um, and so you can't really, you can't really tell. Uh, absolutely, if a horse refuses a formula, I believe the horse, unless they're a horse that doesn't eat anything. Yes, somebody was asking, and I can't find that question now, is there any conflict between these herbs and a horse that's insulin resistant? No, some of these herbs actually have, um, like fenugreek, um, let's see, fenugreek, peppermint, um, You're just gonna be milk thistle, all of those actually have some insulin resistant values. So um, most of the time, the, as far as a dose, a sort of a therapeutic dose, unless they're just nibbling out in the pasture, a therapeutic dose is 15 to 20 grams. It's about um, twice the human dose. We only need maybe at the most three times a human dose. Horses are herbalists. They're very sensitive to herbs. So we really don't have to feed them 
10 times what we feed ourselves. So once you've determined which herbs you're going to use, you're looking, you can get a little postal scale and, and weigh out 15 to 20 grams. Um, but you're looking at a tablespoon, maybe, maybe a couple of tablespoons, depending on how much marshmallow leaf you have in it, because that will be bulky. But um, you don't need to feed tons and tons of, of herbs to have a medicinal effect. And, and when you start eating uh, herbs, how long does the horse need to be on them before you begin to see an effect? In other words, it's different than drugs. You're not gonna see an, an instant effect the way you might with a drug. So what would be a kind of a normal time frame? Um, I, I consider two to four weeks, usually by two weeks, you're seeing a response. You're seeing an improvement. By four weeks, you should be very happy that you're on the right track. If you've gone for four weeks and you're really not seeing a whole lot of change, then you're probably not quite on the right track. Okay. Um, course, somebody said we started to answer the question about an herbal course and we got sidetracked. <laughs> um, I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna look up and see who is actually teaching an herbal course. There is one course in um, a veterinary type of course in uh, the, out on the, on the Eastern shore of Virginia. I don't know though that it's, it may be restricted just to veterinarians. The people who are really serious about it the American Herbal Council um, has a whole bunch of herbal courses. They're not animal courses, but the key is to learn the herbs. And then there are some resources. Um, and what I can do, Wendy, maybe is, is give you some links to a couple of the books to put up. Yeah, I can put that in the description uh, on the YouTube channel. Okay, and, and that way people can, can see some of the books that, are, that really are useful and good. So, so really, to do herbology, you have to understand the plant because it, it's going to have a, a similar effect, whether it's a person or a horse or dog, and then you have to just adjust for the individual animal. Yeah, and for the species. And there's certain herbs like, use like say black walnut as an example. Black walnut is used a lot in people and in some of the small animals, but there are parts of the black walnut that are very toxic to horses. And there are other herbs that are very toxic to cats. And so once you learn the plants, if you're really gonna learn herbology, you are learning the plants and how to use them, not just I give this for that. Right. Right. Well, yes, Allie Thurston, learning. my friend who studied botany. And so when we used to um, trek in New Zealand, she would look at all the plants the horses were eating and she knew the plant and she could say why they were eating the plant because of, she was a botanist. So yeah. um, there's a yeah. lot to be said for knowing the plants to understand the herbs. Right. And that's why in a lot of cases working with formulas that have been put together by herbalists gives you your maximum results, especially in your more serious conditions. Right. 
Um, Heather's wondering if it's Lori Do Doman that's doing that course. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if that is. Um, she thinks it might be vet only. I think it's vet only. Um, and but there may be a couple of others, a couple of other people who are teaching some basic veterinary herbal courses. I will. Uh, I'll check. that get everybody? I think so. We've got all the questions answered. It's been a good group tonight. Very, very inquisitive. <laughs> yes. So the key is to go out and really get to know your horse and look for all of these subtle signs. And whenever something is going on, you can't quite put your finger on there are certainly other things that need to be on the list, but ulcers need to be on that list. And so, so the bottom line, know your horse, recognize subtle signs. Um, you can use drugs as a sort of an experiment to see if they're gonna make a difference, but the bottom line is you have to rebalance the whole horse. Yes, and find out why, you know, see if you can figure out why it's occurring. So if it's, if it's, bad feet, then you're, in order to fix the gut, you're going to have to also fix the feet um, or a bad fitting saddle. But if you have two acres and the horse is just not a good confinement horse, then you're going to be using lots of things like chamomile and things to help the horse deal with the environment and help them deal with the, and competition stress isn't necessarily a bad thing. It just is. And right. so you just help deal with it. Great. All right. Well, if you just unshare your screen, we'll wrap this up. This has uh, been a um, just real yet. Once again, I've learned things that I didn't know, <laughs> even though I've known you for a really long time. I think that's the fun part of doing these webinars with you. Um, and so everybody, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you again, Joyce. It's a pleasure. Um, it's a nice you. thing thank to you do. All cold windy night <laughs> should have had a hot yeah. drink next to me got a hot cat down at the bottom looking for dinner so I, I've, I've been looking down because of her um <laughs> all right and um thanks everybody and tomorrow we're gonna have dr stephen peters coming back talking about the horse's brain and oh by the way i forgot to mention we have a contest going on on the fans of surefoot uh, uh group on facebook um, you, there's going to be five contests over the next five weeks. Please go there and enter. You just post a picture of your horse and tell us why you love Surefoot or why you want Surefoot for your horse. And um, we'll be drawing a, a, a prize each week and then a grand prize at the end for a full set of pads. Okay. So thanks everybody. See you again tomorrow and take care and have a great night. Thanks. Bye. Bye everybody. <laughs>